called all his people that were in the house and they all came out. Two cars had come and, and boxed me in and they were trying to, you know, people started like punching me through the window and, and I was trying to get to the other side of the seat. I was holding onto the steering wheel. They're trying to literally pull me out. They ended up opening the door, pulling my legs. That's when I, I got to, you know, I got a little room on the soccer player. So I was, you know, taking for my life basically. And, you know, it, it got to a point where somebody had pulled out a gun and it, everything stopped, everything slowed down. And the guy had been pointing the gun to me in, you know, about 11 o'clock and everything was still. And then all of a sudden I felt like somebody, if a natural reaction for you to grab something, right? Cause somebody's going to hit you with something. And so I felt like somebody was going to punch me at towards my neck or the side of my head. And so my natural reaction was to, to grab it. And when I look, it was a, it was a young kid that came and, and when I went to grab, I thought I was grabbing his hand. I ended up grabbing a knife and the knife went straight through my, my hand. It went straight through my left hand and I saw it and I, and I pulled it off and he got real close to my neck. He was trying to, he was really trying to go, go for my jugular. Welcome to the show. You're listening to the Hope Radio Podcast. Real stories, real people, real hope. My name, my name is Sean Davis. I happen to be your humble host. And joining me as always, my hostess with the mostest, my co-host in life, my beautiful wife. Her name is... Just Jen. Man, that was a good buildup. <laughs> Did you like that? Yeah, it made me laugh. Well, here's the next part. We are hawkers of hope. We are originators of optimism. We are purveyors of positivity. We are engineers of encouragement, Jen. Yes, we are. We're all the things. We are. Spell all the things that spell hope. Yes, that is. Of course. Keep the hope train and moving on down the tracks. Choo-choo! That's my favorite part. <laughs> I love that. How are you doing today? I am doing well. Thank you for asking. You are doing well. Yeah. Living your best fitness pandemic life yes I aren't am. you yeah sure why not yeah you're doing you're doing videos now you're doing strength training you're still doing running you're like doing all the things jen it's hard to keep up with you i know i'm always evolving always and 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 i think you're lemony snickets you just celebrated a birthday and i swear you just <laughs> lemony keep snickets isn't that who it is Lemony Snickets. Wait, who's the guy that keeps getting younger? Um, Benjamin Button. Oh, who's Lemony Snickets? He's got a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> so basically you're Lemony telling me Snickets I, I don't know like, what I'm talking about. No, I know who Lemony Snickets is. It's a show on TV. It's like, he's weird. He's played by that Dr. Doogie Hauser guy. Well, here's what happened. Yes. I got my weird names mixed up. Yeah, you did. Lemony Snickets and Benjamin Button. Button like, yes. I don't know. I just got my yeah. weird. But regardless, mm -hmm. I still think I spoke truth. Okay. Here you are. You celebrated another birthday, and I feel like you are just getting younger with the. You're like a fine <laughs> wine. You just keep getting better and better. Well, you know, you got to keep 
working on yourself, right? You do. Yeah. Right? Do I do I get points for that? You get points for that. Yes. <laughs> but you as well are working on yourself. So Yeah. Well, you're I think, a Benjamin Button. Well, here's the thing. Okay. Like when all else around you seems to be stuff you can't control. Right. I take back control by controlling something that I can control. Yeah. Yeah. Control. I think I said control too many times there. Control. I might have I just got myself confused That's there. like a Janet Jackson song. But you understand what I'm saying. I do understand what you're saying. Like focus on the things that you can make a difference on. Focus on the things that you can, you know, for me this year, that has been my fitness. Like I can yeah. focus on what I put in my mouth and I can focus on how hard I work or exercise or whatever. So I've chosen to do that. Well, there's not too many things that we can do, you know, like we can't focus on a lot of fun things like going to Disneyland that's been canceled. Canceled. Yeah. Like so, all the stuff, you know, like you normally, we would celebrate birthdays in Disneyland with you. That's like your happy place. And I we know. can't do that this year. I know. It's weird. I like Closed. to, I'd love to wake up at Disneyland on my birthday. I know. So sad. Next maybe, year. Maybe next year. I was saying the same Don't thing. Don't say maybe. Well, you know, this is We kinda, are hopeful next year for sure. Maybe next year. I'm hopeful. <laughs> well i shall soon be hopeful too okay because we do a show about hope and so we're gonna leave hope filled so my cup is going to be runneth over at the end i'm gonna have two cups full really yeah because i already am full why not a thermos why not my big huge gallon hydro flask that too okay well you ready for funny time i'm ready for funny time well let's tell some jokes let's 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 do some humor Humor. Let's see if we can do humor. Humor me. All right. So you're going to go first or you want me to go? No, I want you to go first. So here's the thing. Okay. Mm-hmm. I went to go buy some camo pants. Okay. But I couldn't find any. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a joke. That's a, that's a pun. What's the difference? It made you laugh. I know because it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> see? Whether it's a joke or whether it's a, a, it a was, pun, it was funny. I think it was funny and it made you laugh. And it, maybe it made somebody else laugh too. It was stupid funny and I love stupid funny jokes. Like oh. I have that sense of humor where it's just stupid, but that makes me laugh. Well, it's so all stupid. I wanted to do was make you laugh and I accomplished that Well, you that goal. did that. All right, your turn. I Are you ready? Yep, I'm ready. Why did the turk... What? Oops, what? Sorry, wrong button. Boo on you. <laughs> Is that for Halloween? Were you that, being a ghost? I was premature buttoning. You're already saying my my no, joke I is a boo. No, I just simply hit the wrong button. I was meaning to to do the thing, and it hit the wrong thing. So okay. go ahead, go ahead. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Why did the turkey cross? <laughs> I don't want to play this game anymore. <laughs> I'm just playing. I promise I won't do it again. I don't like it. I know you don't. Now I, pro- I forgot my joke. Say, read it again because it's on your phone. <laughs> no, it's in my head. Okay, say it. Okay. Why did the turkey cross the road? I don't know why the turkey crossed the road. So everyone would think it wasn't a chicken. <laughs> or no, wait, that's wrong. <laughs> no, 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 that's not it. You can't. That's not it? No. That was the funniest thing I've ever heard. No, it's so everyone thought it was a chicken. You know, because it's a turkey crossing the road and it's like almost Thanksgiving and it doesn't want to get eaten. So it wanted people to think it was a chicken. I think it was funnier before you explained it all. Well, 
That's what happens when they just come out of my head. <laughs> I never can remember how to tell them. Oh, uh, I love that you can never remember how, how to tell them. How do we get on telling jokes? I'm like the worst joke teller ever. Well, that's what makes it funny. <laughs> no, I'm horrible at jokes. No, your words matter. You can't say that. It's okay. You made me laugh. You made me, you made me laugh heartedly. I made you? You made me laugh heartedly. <laughs> I... I'm okay with being a bad joke teller. Like I'm not. I'm okay with you I'm being a bad gonna, joke teller too. I'm not going to lose sleep over it. Tonight. So is this an acknowledgement that I'm winning in the in the contest of who's funnier? No, I don't think you're very funny. What? I don't think neither one That's of us very, are funny. You what? know what's funny is that neither one of us are funny, but we both think we're funny. That's what's funny. Well, on that note, I guess <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> <laughs> See, maybe not. All right, so uh, I've got a fascinating interview for you. I've got somebody that um, that I met on Instagram reached out to us. Mm-hmm. The first one has reached out to us via wow. Instagram and says, "Hey, hey, I'm, I might have a story of hope to share." I love that. His name is Eddie Minacho, and uh, to say that this this young man has been through some adversity in his life is an understatement, which you will hear directly from him. But his story is about him being a world changer. It's a, it's about him rising to the occasion. It's about him going through a very, very tumultuous time in his life, mm-hmm. but using that time to point his focus and his direction for where he wanted to go in life moving forward. So I, I think it's going to be an awesome story. Yeah, so I, I can't good. wait to have him on. And uh, how about I call him Let's right now? Let's call him. All right, here we go. All right, I've got Eddie Minacho on the line. Eddie, welcome to Hope Radio Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing good, doing good. Thank you for having me. Well, it's our pleasure to have you. Looking forward to talking with you and uh, excited about Mm -hmm. what lies ahead in terms of our conversation. And just for the benefit of our listeners, Eddie, just tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, where do you live? Where do you call home? What do you do? Yeah, no worries. So I was born in San Diego, but I've been living in greater Los Angeles for the last you know, 20 years in a city called uh, Rancho Cucamonga in South Montana. I'm on the borderline. So I'm, I live in Southern California. Um, but what I do right now, I'm a critical care PA uh, at the at Riverside Community Hospital. So I work with the sick, the sick of the hospital. Um, I'm actually part of the COVID unit for the past eight months. So I've been, you know, doing all the procedures on COVID patients, seeing it from the beginning of the outbreak, uh, you know, treating them with the medication that the president first came out with uh, Plaquenil and then coming with, you know, the new medications. Now I've been seeing, you know, that whole transition in that aspect of the hospital in my, in my position there. Um, so I do all types of procedures, intubation, central lines, HD lines, uh, chest tubes, all types of procedures when it comes to um, critical care medicine. And then on my off day, so I work uh, one week on, one week off. And then on my week off, you know, I take part in, in different ventures we've talked about before. And uh, one of them being working in street medicine, which is you know a fairly new, uh, a fairly new field in medicine. A lot of people don't know about it. If you talk to you know, doctors, CAs, nurses, and you tell them about you know I, I'm a street medicine provider, they'll, they'll ask you what that is. And we can talk about that later. But I mean, I do that through the Tech School of Medicine at USC. So I do that in the Greater Los Angeles. Sometimes I go down uh, downtown in Skid Row and I treat the homeless there. I mean, it, Skid Row is crazy. I mean, the, the homeless population there. If you combine the amount of homeless population there, they're unsheltered. Sheltered, we're not talking about. We're talking about people that are on the streets. It's more than than the top 26 cities in the U.S. combined. Just give you an idea of how how much homeless are there. So I'm part of the team that serves that that homeless community uh, on my off week. And then also what I do is I I uh, I run a business called uh, Brainbox Methods where I help students inside and outside the classroom. Students that are 
um, anybody that needs help. You know, a lot of times we're taught uh, what to learn, but we're never taught how. And, you know, I've been so blessed to have different mentors in my life and gone through different things in my life to, to shed light on these, on these students and give them, uh, you know, give light to their passion. A lot of times students, you know, they have something that they want to do in their lives and something goes in their way. And, and we've talked about this before in the sense that, you know, life hits everybody, you know, and, and uh, if you don't have the necessary tools to handle that, you know, you, you can be blindsided and you can, you know, all of your dreams and goals can go to, to the wayside. And our goal with Brainbox Methods is to make sure that that doesn't happen. We saw too many people, too many students that would have been great leaders in whatever, you know, whatever field that they were going to do, they would have been great at. But because they didn't have the necessary tools to take that on, whether that be grades, whether that be mindset, whether that be, you know, the grit and, and, and tools you need to overcome hardship, um, you know, their goals and, and dreams are put to the side. And so we basically bring that back out of them uh, and make sure we, we make those dreams come true. And you can find us on Instagram. That's what, that's what we're doing and we're building a community to do that. There's nothing like this in, in, uh, in school. And so we, we figured we built, we, we build it. So I have a twin brother and I both went to USC together, both played college together, both played top, top clubs together. And now we're finding this venture and we're, you know, we're having a lot of success with it. So it's, so now it's you guys, been a lot of fun. So you guys are on the front lines of hope. I mean, literally, you're dealing with yeah. COVID patients, you're dealing with Skid Row homeless, and you're dealing with people that have students that have, for whatever reason, you know, maybe given up on their dreams or mm-hmm. felt like they are behind the curve or lost hope in terms of what their purpose was or what they were trying to accomplish because of adversities that they had faced. And so you're actually the first person that I've talked to since all of this whole COVID thing began that is literally in healthcare on the front lines of dealing with it. So that's got to be just a fascinating thing to deal with in and of itself to see what's happening and, and, and to see it, because I think there's a lot of people out there that, that have not been touched. Like Jen and I don't know anybody really personally that's, that's gone through it, but yet you're on the front lines of it. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. I mean, it's really interesting when you hear, you know, things in the news and then you see it firsthand. I mean, I remember when we first, uh, you know, when the, when the COVID unit was first created back in March, it was, you know, we didn't know. We had no information at the time. We were contacting China, contacting, you know, doctors in, in, in Spain and in Italy because those were the, the places most impacted. And so they had the most evidence, so they were doing, you know, like postmortem uh, biopsies on, um, you know, on these on these corpses that were dying from COVID, and they were giving us information on what, you know, preliminary information on what we can do to treat. And we we had no concrete evidence. This research usually takes, you know, a substantial amount to actually come out with good research. And so, at the time, you know, we didn't know what we were we were really treating. You know, it was sad because you saw a lot of these people passing away. You know, I saw. I mean, I've literally seen people right in front of me pass away from COVID multiple, multiple times, over 50 people. Um, and, you know, some at my hands trying to save them, um, some just belonging. And then, you know, you have to, you know, you have to have the conversation with the family to say they're not coming back because essentially if you have COVID for such a long time and you're intubated, your, your lungs start over. And if you're, uh, if you're not going to get a lung transplant, there's probably no, no way coming back from that. And a lot of times that happens to these, to these patients. I mean, and it's, it's miserable, man. It's, it's sad. It's sad when you see people say that, you know, COVID is not real and, and whatever it may be. And, and rightfully so. I mean, I can't, ju- I can't judge people for what they have gone through because, you know, there's, there are cities and, and people that haven't been affected by it. But personally, having seen it firsthand and seeing, 
the effect it has on people and having conversations with family and, you know, uh, having family at bedside, having a family where, you know, there's, there's a couple there that both got COVID at the same time and they weren't, they didn't actually come into the hospital. They came into the hospital for a burn, um, then went to a rehab uh, facility in, in a nursing home. And if you knew nursing home are like a were breeding ground for COVID around our, our just in a lot of areas, but in specifically in California. And so, um, they got it, they got COVID at the nursing home, came back to my hospital, um, both are in my ICU. I did, I did intubations and, and procedures on both of them. And, uh, one made it out and then one was passing away from it. So I had to go up and, you know, grab the wife and tell her that her husband is not going to make it. And so, you know, experiencing those kind of things, there's multiple stories like that. Even our own coworkers, you know, we have nurses and, um, you know, uh, the cleaning lady's mom was in our, is, was in our ICU. I mean, it's, it's just, it affects a lot of people, you know, and, it, and it's sad. It's really sad to, to see people that really don't understand the, the brevity of what, what's at stake, you know, and, and the, the loss, the significant loss that people have, have endured. It's, it's really sad, you know, but the only thing I could do is whenever I tell anybody, I, I talk to somebody about it, I'll, I'll tell them my experience and, you know, give them my, my two cents. Cause you know, I, I'll talk about my story in a little bit, but you know, I lost my dad when I was 18. And I had no idea about medicine. You could have told me X, Y, Z, and I would have believed it because I, I had no experience. I had no knowledge. I had no understanding. And, and that's, you know, the whole thing is you don't know what you don't know, you know, and if you don't, you don't know, you really can't be educated on it. So yeah, I can't really pre, I, pre prejudice against anybody to say that, but yeah. I've, I've said that many times. I've said that uh, there's three schools of knowledge. The stuff you know, you know. The stuff you know, you don't know. And then you didn't know, you didn't know that. You know. And I think that that, that world of the knowledge is, is gargantuan. And so before we get on to your story um, about your father, I, I just want to revisit uh, just COVID just for a second because you're, the again, the first person that yeah. we've ever had on to, to talk about it. Have you yourself gotten COVID because you're on the front lines? I mean, have you been exposed that way or have you been able to avoid it this whole time as you've treated patients, et cetera? So I have been exposed to it. I mean, there's no doubt I've been exposed to it because I do, um, you know, I do procedures on COVID patients all the time. And at one point when COVID was at its peak, I was doing a procedure on, I was doing multiple procedures on COVID patients, you know, all the time. And most of my patients were, were COVID. And I'm not entirely sure if I've actually had COVID because I haven't had the antibody test. But I was pretty ill back in March, and so I believe I had it at the time. I just didn't get tested, and I just kind of did my own quarantine. But no, I, I'm not entirely sure if I if I got it. I think sometime soon I will do that, the antibody test. But you know, it's just taking the, the normal precautions. You have to make sure you wear your 95. Make sure you're, you know, you wash your hands when you get out of the out of the room. Make sure you're, you know, someone's aerosolized. You definitely want to have, uh, you know, your face guard, and you want to have your N95, and then your level one mask over it. You wash out your clothes when you get get home every day. You know, I, I have a, a fresh pair of clothes in my trunk. I change in my trunk. I before I get into my car, I get into my car. I get home. I go to the garage. I clean myself. Um, you know, wipe down all my all the things that I have in my pockets. I put myself straight into the dryer. I go straight upstairs, wash up, and then you know, I do that. Every, I've been doing that every day since since March when I was wow. Wow. working in working in COVID. So. I feel, I feel like I just got through watching uh, Away on Netflix, which is uh, the series about uh, astronauts traveling to Mars. And they before they would do a spacewalk, they're going to go in this decompression chamber yeah. for an hour. I feel like that's that's your process. Like you got to go into your decompression yeah. chamber for an hour to, to end your day. Yeah. But 
Now, you know, so let's go back in your, in your, by the way, this has been fascinating um, just to talk with you. And, and I may ask you another question or two at some point about it, but uh, let's go back in your life because all of this uh, healthcare journey really began for you suddenly and unexpectedly. And it really began with another one of your family members being in a situation where he needed medical care and medical help. And uh, you touched on it a little yeah. bit before, but let's let's talk about your father and let's talk about that season of your life because I think for that year, you know, that you dealt with uh, his illness and the after effects of it was a really, really challenging year for you. So I want to unpack yeah. that for the benefit of our listeners and then, um, you know, expand on it a bit and, and talk about hope. So maybe I should start just by saying that my, my dad and my mom are from the East Coast. Um, so... My dad was from Peru. My mom was from Cuba and back in the 60s. And so they met. Uh, they didn't like what was going on in, in Jersey at the time is where they met. And they moved to California. And that's where I was born. The reason why I say that is because I, I had no family growing up. I never went to a cousin's birthday, uncle's birthday, aunt. I didn't, that never even occurred to me. You know, so you see, you know, Hispanics in California, you think they have a whole multitude of families and they have a multitude of, you know, parties to go to. I never went to any. That was just, just wasn't my my upbringing. So, what I mean by that is that when you're when you're limited to your, only your family, you only know what your family knows. And so, when anything happened, it was you know it was very it was very centric in the sense that we stuck to what we knew basically. And so, when I was 18 years old, my dad uh, he was sick for a long time. And when I was 10, he was disabled with a with a back injury and. He hadn't been working for, for a long time, ever since I moved from San Diego to here when I was 10 years old. And so he would take care of me, take me to school every day, and, and, and um, you know, take me to, to soccer practice, both my brother and I. And he would be, you know, ill for like three days because he was trying to walk around and move, and he'd be bedridden. And I would, you know, I would, you know, very, very clearly remember always having my phone on me to, to be at his whim. You know, I would cook for him, clean for him. Um, do whatever I had to do to cater to him because I knew he was always in pain. I did that for since I was 11 years old. I was, you know, waking up when I was 11 and making him breakfast and, and making him a menu to, to cook for him because it was how severe his back pain was. And so when I was 18, he actually got, uh, he had like a mask on his shoulder. We figured, you know, that doesn't look right. We never, obviously had never seen it before. We took him into the hospital they were running some tests on him. And, and that was the last time that I heard of that. I was, I was in college at the time. And, um, basically they wanted to do biopsies on him and, you know, time went by. They, there was a time that he was put in a, in a nursing, it was like a nursing home or a walking facility or a rehab facility. I can't really know. I wouldn't know what it's, what it's called, but it was a prostitution hospital. It definitely wasn't the hospital. And I would take my homework to him when I was in college in freshman year. And I would ask him, you know, what are they doing for you? And he's like, you know, they're giving me pain medicine and, and so on and so forth. And he, he came home for a very, very short while. Um, you know, and I was playing college soccer at the time. He, I had walked into him, into his room one day, and he was wrapping his legs, like literally from the bottom of his legs, his ankles to his, to his waist. And I asked him, I said, you know, what, what's going on? Dad? Like, how, you know, are you, are you okay? And you don't see that. It just wasn't normal. He did on both legs. And he said that he was saying that his bones hurt. And, uh, you know, now looking back on it, it, being a medical provider, when you have any time you have bone pain, deep seating bone pain, you have to make sure that, and my dad had weight loss. Anytime that is brought to the picture, you have to rule out cancer. 
you have to. It's a, it's a necessary. At the time, though, I thought, you know, he has muscle pain. He's putting an ace wrap on, putting on some icy hot over, all over his legs to, to deal with his pain, you know. And, and for me, I thought it was normal. He came, then he came to my game in a walker, not a walker, a, a cane. First time I've ever seen him use a cane. And I started realizing, like, this is actually, you know, a lot more severe than I thought. Then he ended up being in the hospital, um, staying into this, into this, you know, nursing home or wherever it may be for uh, a few months before the before insurance came by, approved the biopsy, got a biopsy, of the lymph node in case they came back stage four cancer. He was put up into the top level of the ICU at Loma Linda University. Lasted, you know, a month, month and a half. Um, we tried some experimental experimental uh, therapy at the time. They had they told us, you know, they sat us down uh, with my mom and my family, and they said, you know, um, we have a experimental therapy, chemotherapy over in Jersey, but it only gives them a 5% chance. So you can either take this 5% chance and it's not covered through your insurance, or you can, you know, uh, switch into comfort care. You know, at the time, anybody, not anybody, but I guess, for a 50-year-old, my dad was 50 years old, 50, 51, you want to give him the best shot. So at the time, we, we you know, figured we'd go for the 5%. He lasted, he lasted uh, about a few weeks. And I actually never told anybody this, but it's actually really, it was really interesting in this, in this time frame. Because when his, he got his two-week therapy from this chemotherapy, and he was, you know, before that, he had been, the, the cancer had spread to his back, he was, having like broken vertebrae, I would visit him and he'd be in severe pain, pushing the morphine button over and over and I'd run to the doctors to try to get him to give him some more pain medication. Um, I would times I would come in and he'd be hallucinating and he wouldn't know who you are. He's saying like, he, he, he would be saying something and he would forget and he would just sit there and cry. And, you know, two weeks of that chemotherapy, about two days before he ended up passing away he was my brother and I went to go visit him and uh he was the most lucid I had ever seen him in months he knew everything uh he he had recalled everything like it, it, it at the time it seemed like my brother and I knowing nothing about medicine we thought to ourselves man dad's better you know he's he's back to his normal self he was walking he was he was funny I'll never forget things he was asking us to get you know and he told me at that time, he's like, you know, make sure you spend time with your with your family, and when you eat, like eat slow, eat slow and, and enjoy your food because you know you never know when your time's gonna come. And sometimes you you eat too fast, you like take things for granted, you take your family for granted, the people that you your loved ones for granted. And those are the last words that he ever told me. And a few days later, he ended up suffering uh, intracranial hemorrhage, the, the cancer spread to his brain. And it wasn't long after that that he passed away. After that, uh, you know, I, we went into, you know, recovery mode. I was, you know, sleeping with my mom every night to, to console her because she was by herself. We had no family here, right, following us. And so I, uh, you know, it, I was just witnessing, you know, trying to figure out what was going on with, with all this. I kind of figured myself out. The next day, actually, after my dad passed away, he, Another thing he told me, you know, weeks before is that he wanted me to take care of my family. So the, the day after he passed away, I went to go do an interview for UPS. I got a job working in night shift. And then I got another job working as a cashier during the day a week after that. So I was working two jobs within a week uh, just to cover the expenses that we had lost. 
and so, but I was still, you know, going through depression, doing all, you know, just trying to figure out what was going on. Two months after. Hey, yeah. Eddie, before you, before you move on, let me, let me just uh, ask you some questions about your father before we get on to, uh, to that. You'd mentioned yeah. that he was the most lucid that you had seen him a couple of days prior to him passing. And I'm, I've, I've heard of this before. I've heard mm-hmm. of it in many different examples. And, and I'm just curious, like, in, I'm a faith-filled person. I'm a spiritual person. Sometimes I feel like God will allow that to happen as a point of closure or as a, as a, like, for example, you fondly remember it now. You, you, you remember him being lucid. He's having that conversation with you. So, like, as you reflect on why that had happened or how that had happened, I mean, do you, does faith pay, play a part in that? Do you think that that was especially a season for you, a moment for you to, you know, take something from him that he wanted to give you, that he was able to give you, and then, you know, now remember that for the rest of your life? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I reflect on that a lot. You know, I reflect on, you know, what, at the time I thought it was just, you know, the chemotherapy and, and still, I mean, who knows, but I remember I had a uncle visit, one of my mom's uncle's visit and he was the only family member that came and was, you know, here with us. He came from New York and came and visited him because he was a good friend of my dad. And he spent a lot of time with my dad in his last days. And he had told me, you know, he was like a, he was being like a father figure to me at the time. And he had told me like, you know, your dad told me that he's at peace, you know, that he, um, you know, he's at peace with, with where he's at. He's made his men with Jesus and he, like, he has faith basically is what he was trying to tell me that he's, that he has faith. He's going to go to a better place. And yeah. And then all that, all that occurred happened after that. And so, was it a moment that God let in my life to, you know, say his final words and final peace? I mean, definitely could be. And it is something that I've, I've taken for the, for the rest of my life. You know, I've, I've been through a lot of things in my life, but, you know, I, I oftentimes, if I'm, you know, too busy, if I'm, you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm letting the rat race, you know, take me on or the, the stresses of life kind of, pull me away from, from the present moment. I try to remember those times and I, and I, instead of eating so fast, I eat slow. If I see my brother, <laughs> I sit down and talk, you know, and I just enjoy my food, enjoy my food, enjoy my time. Um, and so, yeah, it's in the, in, you know, the grand scheme of things, it's the most precious thing we have. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, um, you know, I feel like I shared, I shared that my, my father passed away in 2015 and at the time, I I didn't we knew that he was sick. He had some pulmonary fibrosis. He was on supplemental oxygen. He was you know just really challenged in his lungs basically. And he had been given a diagnosis that he was had maybe 18 months to live and at this particular time it had been like 25 or 26 months or something like that. So he he'd been longer and we were just really he had a primary caregiver uh, that was living with him at the time, and she just had been caring for him for over a year. She needed a break, and so we were just going to put him into a, um, you know, an elder care facility for like five days, give her a, a basically a caregiver break. And um, he, 
like the the night that they picked him up, like he was just upset. He was pissed. He was angry. He yeah. didn't want to go in the ambulance. Didn't want to leave his house. You know that was like his thing. He did not want to leave his house, and so they ended up having to give him some sort of a yeah. sedative to calm him down. And so the next day, I yeah. go and visit him. He's not conscious, um, and I assumed that, that was still because of the, the sedative. He was he was um, relaxed and 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 basically resting. And so the the next day yeah. after that, my I was a financial advisor at the time, and I had like four appointments that day. The, my whole schedule blew up. Mm-hmm. A cancel appointments canceled. All kinds of stuff had happened, which was weird. And so I looked at Jen right. and I said, "Let's go. Let's go visit." dad you know just kind of an impromptu so it wasn't planned and I and I get there and this and I come into his room and some woman's beside his bed and come to find out she's the chaplain and and she basically I said what are you doing and she's all well you know I was just praying with him because he's in transition and I'm like in transition like what what do you mean in transition she's like he's in transition like he's dying and I was like, whoa, like that was the first time that, that somebody had said it to me at that, at that moment. And, and so anyway, she excused herself and I, and I sat beside him and I'm an only child, you know, there was no one else there other than my wife and, and myself. And I just basically told him it was all right. It's okay if you go, you know, everything's going to be okay. You know, I'm here, I'm going to be all right, etc. He took two more breaths and then he was gone. And, you know, I often reflect back to, on that time in that in that moment and I you know attribute the ability for me to be there and just the way I mean it was you know obviously it was very difficult um, but it was also very beautiful yeah. in the way that it had happened and for me to have the chance to be there and it was only my wife and I in the room with him and to have those yeah. final moments and and things like that and so I, I just really felt like that was a gift it was a gift from God to yeah. me in that moment I was there to to witness that because had my schedule gone the way it had normally gone I would I would have been in an appointment when I got a call you know what I mean like so it was just it was mm-hmm. I think it was beautiful, you know, the way that it it had unfolded. And I think that that moment with your dad, you know, that, that his being lucid in the conversation and you'll never, ever for the rest of your life, forget him telling you, Hey, slow down when you eat your food. Good message for Jen too, because she's a foodie. Jen (laughs) Jen loves food. She you, you wrote that down, didn't you? You wrote down, I better eat my food slow. (laughs) That way it lasts longer. (laughs) Now yeah, I, no, you I enjoy it. Yep. yeah, exactly. Now I, I had, uh, stopped short or stopped you short of explaining what happened to you next. Yep. So your father passes away, you know, you're, you're, yep. a, you're in soccer. You're, I mean, you got a lot of stuff going on, but you actually yep. are in a situation where you end up in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so unpack that for us. Yeah. Yeah. So two months after my dad passed away, I was, I was actually sitting, I was in using his car truck and wrong place wrong time uh was meeting my friend i ended up getting jumped and they were trying to like essentially they were trying to kill me i was i was being jumped by 14 different people 14 um, did you say 14 break. yeah 14 people and so i actually stopped um to park outside his house and where i was at it was a very dangerous area um and so i was waiting for them to come out and I fell asleep at the wheel because I was coming off my second job. And I sleeping, I had a feeling that there was someone there, someone from, that, from the house next door. He was trying to start problems. And I was telling him, you know, I don't want to start any problems. I'll leave, whatever. And he called all his people that were in the house. And they all came out. Two cars had come and, and boxed me in. 
and they were trying to, you know, people started like punching me through the window and, and I was trying to get to the other side of the seat. I was holding onto the steering wheel. They're trying to literally pull me out. They ended up opening the door, pulling my legs. That's when I, I got to, you know, I got a little room on the soccer player. So I was, you know, kicking for my life basically. And, you know, it, it got to a point where somebody had pulled out a gun and it, everything stopped, everything slowed down. And the guy had been pointing the gun to me and, you know, about 11 o'clock and everything was still. And then all of a sudden I felt like somebody, if a natural reaction for you to grab something, like right? somebody's going to hit you with something. And so I felt like somebody was going to punch me at towards my neck or the side of my head. And so my natural reaction was to, to grab it. And when I look, it was a, it was a young kid that came and, and when I went to grab, I thought I was grabbing his hand. I ended up grabbing a knife and the knife went straight through my, my hand. It went straight through my left hand and I saw it and I, and I pulled it off and he got real close to my neck. He was trying to, he was really trying to go, go for my jugular. And so I pulled off my hand and, and everybody seemed to, to start running because they saw blood, you know, going everywhere and everybody started running away. And I, I, I was able to turn on the car, close my door, turn on the car and, and you know, get on the curb miss that car in front of me and and get get back on the street take i was like took two quick left to try to try to get out of this little neighborhood i got out and i was on the street that was like a pitch black street two months after my dad passed away and you know at the time i didn't feel i didn't feel how bad you know the, the stab one was because i was, it was the adrenaline you know and so i'm on the street pitch black street i don't know where i'm at the train track to my right, I'm, the neighborhood's to my left, I'm, you know, I'm going down the street and it's pitch black, I can't see anything. The only thing I can see are the headlights in front of me and I'm driving, I'm driving, I'm driving and sooner or later, my, my, the pain in my hand starts, starts throbbing like to the point where it's 10 out of 10. I'm just like, man, this is, and I'm bleeding a lot. So I take off my shirt and I, and I wrap my hand and I'm, you know, I'm in a lot of pain at the time and I thought to myself, I started getting like lightheaded and I pull over to the side and I'm like, okay, this is it. Like, I'm just going to let my hand bleed out and pass away right here. And so I pulled to the side and I put my seat back. Yeah, I didn't know where I was at. It was literally, it looked like I was in a black field. And I, uh, I put the seat back and I'm just like, this is, this is it. Um, I'm going to, I'm just going to pass away here. And I was thinking about my dad and, and all these, Classic memories were just coming through my my mind, you know, and it was like a white light almost. And, I, and it's, as cliche as that sounds, I swear to you, it's, it's as clear as day to me. All these flashing memories of my my dad was coming back was coming back to me, and I was thinking to myself, "Okay, I'm gonna be with my dad now. I'm gonna pass away, and you know, I could be there with him." And as the time was going, I was having all these memories, and I can hear a voice like this voice tell me, "Like, do it for your mom." Like go to your mom, and I got this like jolt of energy, like a like a electrifying jolt. And I sat back on my feet, and I thought to myself, like, "What am I doing?" And I put the put the seat back up, and I put put the truck and drive, and I keep going straight on this black road. I don't know where I'm going, so I'm just going straight for however long. I can't remember how long I was going for five ten minutes, and I'm going straight. And I finally see a car. It was Cadillac come out of the come out of the neighborhood, and I needing to catch up to it because I wanted to tell them like, Hey, I, I just got stabbed. I don't know where I'm at. Like I need help. And so I, I'm trying to speed up to this, this Cadillac and I'm like catching it. And as I get closer to it, it is like midnight now. 
and I'm trying to catch up to it and they think I'm racing them and we're racing at like midnight and out of nowhere, like we're racing. I'm trying to catch them and try to figure out like where I'm, where I'm going. And out of nowhere, the train tracks stop us. Train tracks come out of nowhere and they stop us. And I'm like, this is like, when I look back at it, I think it's like a sign from God or sign from my dad to like stop this person. And it was a group of people that just got out of a party. And I told them, like, yo, I just got stabbed. Like I need, I need help. So they, they, you know, told me to follow them. So I followed them and I went to a gas station and the gas station there, they called 911. It was you know, blood all over the, all over the truck. Um, they pulled me out of the car and, and, and mind you, actually, the reason why I also pulled over was because when I, when I was back in the truck, I tried to call 911 and I wasn't getting signal. Then I finally got through. And when I got through, they were asking for directions on how to get to me. And I, and I couldn't come up with directions because it was, in pitch black. I didn't know where I was at. And so I was like, okay, this is useless. Anyways, so now I'm at the gas station and they call 911. Uh, the fire truck comes, all these newspapers come to get report for me. And it was, ended up taking me to uh, Arrowhead Regional Medical Center right where I ended up getting uh, sutured up. And so, so I got stabbed that, that night and then I went back home I come to find out that there was a gang, there was a gang initiation night and, and four of the people had died that night. And I was the only one that made it out. They got attacked. And so, um, in, and at the time I was still playing soccer. I was still playing for the college soccer team. And I was so dedicated to playing soccer that I got stabbed at midnight. I went to the hospital at around, you know, 1230, whatever I got featured up and, got sent back home. I like cried myself to sleep because I, I, the pain pills, I didn't take the pain pills in time. So I was like, literally crying myself to sleep. I, and I had to wake up for training camp at six. So I woke up at six with a stabbed hand, like blood still weeping from my bandages and showed up to practice and told him like, Hey, like I, I just got stabbed. Like I'm, I'll put on my cleats. Like I'll, I'll play. And I was, I was playing. I was trying to play. I don't think they let me play for the first few days, but I was having people tie my shoes that week to, to play in, in soccer. But so, you know, fast forward two weeks, I, uh, I was in a training drill. I got, I hadn't, I hadn't, uh, you know, tested my hand or anything like that. I figured, you know, I, I need time to recover. I know nothing about medicine at the time. Um, and then eventually I need to follow up with my, my doctor. Right. And so I was in a drill two weeks later somebody kicks the ball out of my hand and I go in like almost shock and so much pain, how much pain I was in, like complete shock. And the trainer was there. We always have a trainer watching us when we were playing it in college soccer. And they're like, Hey, you got to get released by your doctor. So I go to go to my doctor that, that week and she takes off my bandage and she puts a pencil in my hand and she's like, squeeze a pencil. And I, I can only squeeze my three, my third, fourth and fifth digit, my pinky, my ring finger, my middle finger. And my other fingers weren't moving. And so what happened was when they stabbed me, they actually severed my tendon to my thumb and my, my index finger. And so my pointing finger. And so, um, so I had to have another surgery, uh, to repair my tendon. And then I went through, so I, I couldn't play soccer basically. because I had to have another surgery. Then I had to go through intense therapy, uh, where they like mold, uh, a cast to like, extend your fingers back to where they normally should be. Um, and I did that for, for nine months, basically, and got kicked off the soccer team because I couldn't play. 
So, so um, let me, so let me unpack your basic, you know, this is, this is all within effectively three to four months after your father passed away. So your, your, your father passes away and that, that's, I mean, having no other family in the area, it's your mom, your brother, your twin brother and your father, your father passes away, leaving both your, and your sister. Okay. So you, there's, there's there's three siblings, two other siblings to you and your mom. And so you guys have to rally and, and get jobs because your dad, you know, is, is no longer there and the family needs to cover expenses. And then within two months, you just, I mean, you were almost killed. I mean, a gang initiation night, I, I yeah. saw Jen wince and go, Oh my gosh. And you know, like the, what does that mean? They just randomly attack people and as part of an initiation to see yeah. what you're made of kind of thing. And, and did you ever see that young guy? Did anybody ever get in, in trouble? Did you, did what happened with the whole yeah, attack? No. Yeah, no. So after, after I got stabbed, you know, I, I knew people in the area that I played soccer in this area and it was, it was a really dangerous area at the time. And I knew people that were, that were, that would police in San you know, and they told me like nobody nobody goes to this to this city like they and the reason why is because the people in this area they they take off the streetlights so when when cops are there they can't see who they're who they're looking for uh, it's a very like heavily drug drug trafficking drug trafficking area um, uh, a lot of violence in that area a lot of gang activity in that area and so. Um, yeah, they just, they get rid of all the streetlights. They harass, they harass the, the police. And it's like very, the police have a very low presence there. And so I remember talking to somebody and they were saying like, you're, you're not going to catch them. Whatever it is, like, you're not going to catch them. And so I never end up going through it. And the other, the other reason why is because, you know, it's a, I'm not too far from that area. So, you know, had I, had I pursued it, I didn't want anything to come back to me or my family. Yeah. So, I didn't, I didn't want to even go down that route. And so I thought about it, you know, and, and I just thought to myself, you know, it's, it's it, not it worth, it. worth it. It's not Let's worth it. Off. Yeah. And, but, uh, but yeah. So, um, so how did, how did you handle all of this at the time? This had to have felt like a, a mountain on your shoulders. So your father passes away. You're still very much in the grieving, grieving process you now get yeah. stabbed, which in and of itself has got its own psychological, uh, I would expect, effects to it. And then your love, your passion, your 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 outlet, soccer, that gets ripped away from you. And so, like, what were you feeling at that time? Did it did it feel like your whole world was coming crashing down around you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it felt like all my love and passion was taken away from me. You know, the person that I looked up to, my mom at the time was working all the time. You know, my dad was the one that was at home taking care of me, taking me to school, taking me up from school. Sometimes he was in too much pain to pick me up from school, so I'd have to walk home. But needless to say, he was the one that was going to pick me up. You know, my mom was working all the time. So he was like my hero at the time. And then my outlet was taken from me. Um, then I had to, you know, go through intense therapy and be on heavy medication because I was in pain. If I didn't take my, my pills at the, at the time that I, that I needed to, I was in severe pain. And so at the time I, I just started trying to, trying to look for outlets on what I could do. I mean, and, and I could see why people could, you know, we talk about this all the time, especially in homeless medicine. It's like you can't judge someone's, someone's 
uh, reaction to their pain because you don't know their pain, you know, and it's not until you go through it that you actually realize like how easy it is to, to pick an outlet, right? An outlet of drugs, an outlet of alcohol, an outlet of uh, whatever it may be, right? And so, you know, I've been there and, and it's not easy. It's not easy to uh, move on and, and, and find purpose in your life and, and so on and so forth. For me, I started reading the Bible. I started, I started reading uh, a lot more books and started, you know, delving into my, um, into who I was and what I wanted. You know, at the time, soccer was everything to me. I was going to be a professional soccer player and I was going to make that everything. Um, but all that changed right away. You know, I ended up playing college soccer and playing professional for a little bit and traveling. But my identity was taken away and, and it was a very quick reality check to, to tell me, one, you're not going to live forever. And two, uh, soccer could be taken away from you in an instant. But your mind will always be there. And that's something that I never focused on. I never focused on how I can develop myself as a person develop my mind as a, as an intellectual, um, you know, and I was sleeping in my dad's room, uh, to, to accompany my mom because she was crying at night and I'd be in the room all day because I was in, I was, you know, rehabbing from whatever it was. I couldn't work. Uh, you know, obviously I couldn't work with one hand. I was just recovering. And while I was in there, you know, my dad was an extremely, an extremely intelligent person. I mean, he read books all the time and you ask him a question about anything, he knew it. I mean, everybody knew my dad was a very, very intelligent person. And at the time, I never, I never thought about it uh, in that in that regard. As I was growing up, I just you know thought my dad was smart and I was that. But I never thought to be like him in that way. And he had books on his shelf, and I started reading them. So reading, you know, uh, Stephen Covey's Seven Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Reading the Love Bible. Love that book. Reading things on business. Reading things on on leadership and. You know, I basically started sharpening myself, started, you know, figuring out how can I, how can I better myself? And so I started delving deep on, on, you know, the things I was feeling, whether it was depression, whether it was, um, confidence, self-awareness, self-identity, you know, all these different things. So I started looking up different books on, with Ted Jakes or, um, um, what is it? Is it Ted Jakes? No, uh, T.D. Jakes, uh, T.D. Jakes, Jim Rohn, listening to Tony Robbins. Um, you know, listening to these different people and, and to inspire me and figure out where I wanted to go with my life. And so I started reading books that would, that would better me. And once I started doing that, I started realizing what I wanted in my life was, was to do something bigger than, than me that was, that had some type of purpose. And so as I was going along, I was, you know, trucking along with that, you know, at the time to say I was completely healed through that was, would be a lie. But did it, did it put me in the right direction? It definitely did. It definitely put me in the direction to keep me stable because it made me hold on to something, right? Like I was still holding on to the words of, of wisdom, of hope, of, of so on and so forth, right? And then remembering my dad, like every paper that I, that I wrote, every, every note that I took in college, every um, test that I took, I would always tell myself my, the things that my dad would tell me, you know, like focus. He always used to tell me focus on your goals and never forget them. And I, and I wrote that on everything. I wrote it on my hand. I wrote it on, on my notebook. I wrote it on, uh, you know, my my social media things. Anything I could put my hands on, I put it to remind me. And so I tell that to a lot of students, like, what's your mantra? What is the thing that you always go to that can remind you, ground you, to put you in the right direction? And so I started, I started doing that and everything. And so once I started doing that, I, I ended up meeting somebody. And I think, you know, life happens in mysterious ways and everything happens for a reason. I met a, I met an individual that, that told me to apply for this, this internship. And the internship was about health disparities. 
Um, and this is the first time I ever heard about anything in, in that pertaining to health. She knew that my dad passed away. And so she asked my brother and I to apply. And these people that were in this, in this internship, we ended up getting it because she was sitting on the board. Uh, so she was going to let us in. And so <laughs> that's a good connection um, to have. And, and I, re- I remember you saying yeah, something about so. that. I think we're missing a piece of the story because there, there was something that had happened with your dad and you, you felt like he hadn't gotten the care that he deserved. And you, you realized this at yeah, some later yeah. point. And this is, this is what got you yeah. into medicine. So I, I, I want to make sure yep. that that point is, is part of it. But then yeah. additionally, I mean, have you ever given thought with, with like you being the primary caregiver to your father like I remember you saying you, you took care of him you'd cook meals you'd do this you'd help him with that etc you know do you now it, it's not shocking to me that you end up in health care because that's just an extenuation of that like you are serve others type of person yeah yeah no 100% I mean it's something that we did my dad always made sure that that it was something that was always a priority right like when I was growing up you know in a typical Hispanic household, the, the, you know, the, the husband goes to work, he sits down, the, the wife brings the, the coffee, she stirs the coffee, he drinks the coffee, she comes, picks it up and washes it. But like, that's not, that was not the way our family ran. It was, it was like, do what you need to do to, to move forward, do what you need to do to support the other. So he would constantly tell me, you know, my mom was at work and I was home in the house dirty. My dad would tell me, my dad would tell me, he's like, you know, do you think your mom wants to come home after working a long day to a dirty house? And so the obvious, the obvious answer is no. So we would clean. Uh, do you think your, your, your mom would want to come home to no food cooked? No. So we would cook. So we, that's what we did. And, and you know, there's, there's a book on, on leadership and it's the 10 rules of leadership. One of them being like, don't ask somebody to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. So my dad was never that way. Like he was, he was ill, but he would always do what he had asked of you. If he was telling you to clean, he's there with you cleaning. If he's telling you to wash the dishes, he's there washing, drying the dishes. If he's telling you to cook, he's cooking with you. And so it was a good example for me to, to realize, like, you don't just ask somebody to do something for you. You actually do that with them to show them, like, it's not above you. It's not below you. And so, you know, growing up, I was always, I was always taught to serve the other, to, to help that person grow in some way, whatever it may be, whether it's support, whether it's cleaning, the support can come in any, any type of way, whether you're just listening to somebody or actually doing some form of act. But that was what, you know, that was what I, I grew up doing. So to, to be in healthcare and shift my mind towards that, I never thought, you know, to, to be honest with you, Sean, I never even thought that Hispanics even worked in healthcare. That's how naive I was. That's how closed off my world was. I thought health, I thought doctors were only privileged people that got into healthcare. Like I, I never even saw a Hispanic healthcare provider. That's how closed off my world was. Wow. And, you know, I was only exposed to soccer. And so when I found out that there were Hispanics in healthcare, I was like, wow, that's freaking amazing. Like <laughs> who can I get? Who it's like your I, whole world opens who can up. I get to, yeah, no, seriously. I swear to God. And so then I ended up meeting uh, Ricky Juarez and Ricky Juarez introduced me to medicine. I was like, man, look at this guy leading in medicine, going to be a doctor and so on and so forth. And he started teaching me. But when, to get back to the, to the other point that you talked about and how I actually realized, you know, the, the type of treatment that, you know, my family got that put me into to, um, healthcare was, was from this girl. So, so her name was Sarah, and she actually got us into this program that's called the Health Disparities Program. Um, and it basically, the Health Disparity, for those that don't know, Health Disparity is basically anything that, 
that alters your care to the person next to you, whether that's the money that you make, where you live, the soil that you that you walk on, the um, whatever it may be, wherever you fall on the socioeconomic ladder, your your care should be similar. Though it's not, I mean, it's obvious that it's not. It should be, but if it's not, it's called the health disparity. So when I realized that, like, my dad was being in some way discriminated against for his for his whether whether it's the color of his skin, his insurance, um, where he lived, how much money he made, the fact that he didn't work and he was trying to take advantage of the system and so on and so forth, them not understanding that he was in pain, them labeling him a, a, a pain a pain uh, um, a pain seeker, like a uh, pain pill seeker, because he was in pain all the time. You know, when they do that, it, it alters the care that you get. And so he never wanted to go to the to the doctor. And he would always tell me, you know, they always tell me the same things. They always give me the same things. And that's a health disparity, right? Because I'm telling you, Sean, if if had I known what I know now, my dad was exhibiting symptoms of cancer for three years. He constantly would walk around with a with a towel in, in the car because he was having sweats and he would he would just sweat profusely. He was he would uh, at one one year uh, years before he passed away, he lost like 40, 50 pounds. It was nuts. I was like, man, in my mind, right. And I'll be in a healthcare provider. I'm like, wow, my dad, you know, has a really good diet. He's like, not, he's not really eating. And he's like losing a lot of weight, like good for him, you know? Um, and then lastly, he got, you know, he had, uh, the bone pain where he was like wrapping his legs, all three symptoms. They call these B symptoms, nice sweat, bone pain, and weight loss. Those are all cancer symptoms of, of, of lymphoma. And he had that for years. Had had he gone to a doctor where they like can relate to him and understand him and open up to him and not label him, they probably could have they probably could have prolonged his life a year, two years, three years. Who knows? They could have caught it early. They could have resected it where where it was. And you know, once it passes the die once lymphoma passes the diaphragm it's stage four. But there's a reason why they call it stage one, two, three, and four, right? Like, because you can catch it at stage one or stage two. And then, obviously, you want to. But he had it for years before he actually, before he was actually diagnosed. Um, how that went about, who knows? But I know for sure he would tell me these things about the healthcare, the, the healthcare system. And I just thought to myself, like, man, how screwed up is our system that I have to endure a loss and what really got me was that I have a, fan, a very close friend that plays talk with me. Um, his mom had the same type of cancer and got diagnosed super early. She ended up, she was doing well at the time. I haven't followed up with him in a long time, but she was doing well for years. And I thought to myself, like, man, that's so, I'm so great that they caught it. But like my, my dad was on the shorter end of the stick and it's unfortunate you know, and working with the homeless, you see this all the time. The healthcare system lets them down so much. And they used to say, like, everybody should be held accountable for actions and things like that. I'm talking about the ones that fall through the cracks, the ones that, that need the help, that should have gotten the help, that didn't. Um, and so that's a health disparity. And once I realized that, I learned that in that program. You know, show us charts and, and, and the soil that you live on. And they have maps. Uh, the government has, like, maps where it says, like, you know, the soil that you live here can go for less because you're closer to an oil rig or you're closer to, to this coal mine. And because the air quality is worse, your life expectancy of everybody that lives here is 10 years younger than the people that live on the other side of town where it's 
fresh air, clean soil, clean water, so on and so forth, right? It's like, how can you sell someone this land knowing that their life expectancy is going to be decreased by 10 to 15 years? Wow. It's incredible. What if the that's, person has COP? What if they have well, I've just, I've just never heard yeah. of anything like if, that before. I, I, I just, you know, I guess, are you shocked, Jen? Yeah. Like, I feel like you, like, I know we touched on this in the pre, pre-conversation, but mm-hmm. I had never heard of, like, health disparity in this form. And, you know, I, I just sit back yeah. and, and go, how does how does this happen? And, and, and I think it's like racism. I think it's like, you know, a lot of the systemic problems of, of uh, today's society. But, you know, also in the back of my mind, I go, you know, like, God, why, why couldn't you do something about this? Why couldn't you do? And in the back of my mind, I hear him yeah. say, I did. I created Eddie. You know, Eddie, Eddie now, like you're, you're much more aware of it now. You can look for those signs now. And now here you are through all of these events, through all of this history, all of this learning, all of this education. Now you're taking it and applying it to the homeless community in LA. And I think that in and of itself is a story of, of hope. You're taking the, the horrible things that happened to you, rising above them getting an education and then going out into the world to try to make a difference and address the problems that you experienced in your own family. Yeah. I mean, let me, let me tell you that the, I'm, I'm doing that wholeheartedly, you know, and when I first came out, it was just my brother and I, it was like, you know, this is wrong and we can do this. Just the fact that we can, we can apply the same discipline that we used to do and wake up at five in the morning to go play soccer and come back to play soccer some more times. We can do that same discipline, apply it to school, and be successful when we were. But sooner or later, you start to understand that that you know it's so much bigger than you. You know, and once you realize that, like I can, I can touch a patient and I can, you know, change their lives and and apply this learning of health disparity. But it's only one person. I can only affect one person. So through Brain Block, through through my through my outreach and whatever I do in the future, it's, it's to build leaders to actually understand this to a greater capacity because I, I can affect one person and they can affect another as opposed to keeping it to myself. That's why I'm getting this message out because it needs to be said. And that's why, you know, back in, in 2012, I went to a, I went to a conference up in UC Davis. It's a big healthcare conference. It was after I found medicine, uh, like a year and a half after I found medicine. I was, went to this conference with my brother and Twitter, Twitter, uh, students. And we realized like there's such a, an amazing conference here that they, you know, they, they educate the community. They show them how to get into to all these medical professions, how, what, what are the, you know, the steps to get in. They motivate them. They do all these kind of things. And they don't do that at my school. And UC Davis is a beautiful area. If you've ever been to UC Davis, it's gorgeous. And so you go to Cal State San Bernardino and you look at the area around it, you're like, UC Davis needs it. But San Bernardino needs it much more. Like these people are suffering. The patient, popu- the patient population ratio, like the that's supposed to be one to a hundred. I can't remember exactly what it is. It's supposed to be one to a hundred. It's like one to 200. It's just off. And you think to yourself, like, why, why is this? Why, why are we settling for this? So what we did was we, we created a conference at the time. There was only one advisor to give you advice on how to get into med school, PA school, public health school, nursing school, whatever it may be. There was one advisor. His name was, uh, Mr. Samita, Dr. Samita. And, Granted, like Cal State San Bernardino is a huge school, one of the biggest Cal State uh, schools in, in California. So imagine how many people are trying to contact this guy to set up an appointment to learn how to get into school. It's only one guy, and he has his own classes to teach. He teaches at a medical school. He has very little time to do this. We had no 
pre-health office, an office that we can go to to figure out, hey, where do we go to get this information? Like, how do I even get to this school that I want to go to? Do I just look online or is my school going to help me do this? I'm paying college tuition for you to help me, but they didn't have one. We we're the only Cal State system in the Cal State school in the system that didn't have that. And so my brother and I, and so the students, we created a conference where we brought medical professionals from, from many different medical professions um, together to create this conference to educate our students to basically change, uh, empower the community with their, with their passion for medicine. That was the, that was the title of the, of the conference. And the reason why that is so we can address health disparities, the, the, the core, the core uh, message behind our conference was health disparities. Cal State San Bernardino needs, needs you. Like our community, your community needs you. Your community needs you to, to understand what's going, what's going on. And if you want to be a medical professional, this is how you do it. Right. And so we brought people, in to teach them how to do that and eventually what happened was the president came watched it um you know, when i brought the when we brought the the uh, idea to the president he said you know this isn't a good idea this is this is a great idea i'm going to fund you this much this much and you're going to go to this person they're going to fund you this much and we're going to make this happen so we made it happen then it was a success the president came watched it he trans- transitioned out a new president came in they ended up funding to create a pre-medical office after that conference um, that would make sure that the conference is held every year since then, this is back in 2012, and to make sure that we have dedicated professionals to make sure that we can educate our students that want to go into the medical profession properly. And so now that's created and the conference is in its ninth, its ninth year and I go and speak every year, except you know, maybe one or two years I've missed. But, um, you know what you are, Eddie? Yeah, we, we did that nine years ago. You know what you are? You, yeah. you are a world changer. You are a make things happen, get it done, <laughs> make a difference kind of a guy. And uh, I love interviewing people like yourself because, you know, it, it, it takes a conviction of the spirit. I think it takes some heart. I think it takes some courage. It think, takes some hard work. You know, all the hallmarks of, of um, any level of success or the success hallmarks or success attributes that you'd have to have. But, you know, I just love that you're coming alongside your, your fellow humans. And I feel like, you know, some of the stuff that happened to you was, was, uh, really, really unfortunate. But I think sometimes God will allow these things to happen, um, to us, for us, for the benefit of our future self. So that, that something will come out of it that is a much bigger, positive point of change or awareness or whatever so that you can be a lamp a light you know shining onto the problem or the or the path for others and i think that's exactly what what you've done certainly um commendable certainly uh, you know i'm in awe of of at your age and and what you were able to accomplish in terms of uh social and and academic change yeah i mean let me tell you i mean once you once you go through something that's very traumatic um, you know, as you're growing up, everything is about you. You know, you go to school, it's about your grades. You go to a game, it's about your your performance. You go to uh, college, it's, it's about your grades again. It's about how do you get into school. It's not until something actually happens to you or somebody introduces it to you, some type of tragedy, some type of trauma, some type of life-changing experience. They call it, you know, I was talking to one of my, one of my uh, mentors, uh, Dr. Kevin Henry, um, at USC, and he was telling me about uh, a thing called the Kairos moment. Have you ever heard of that? Called the Kairos moment. I, I'm familiar with Kairos, yes, but go ahead, explain it for our listeners. So, so the Kairos moment is basically a moment in time that shifts your focus. Something that 
that alters your experience in life. Like you now have something that makes you want to pursue your dreams, your goals, something that just gave you a vision. So my Kairos moment was obviously when my dad passed away and I realized like this is it's so much bigger than me. And that's what happens when, when you go through some type of trauma. It levels you, it humbles you because your whole life is about you. And when you're a baby, right, you're, you're being cradled to be, and it's all surrounded you. And then once you realize like it's bigger than you, you'll start realizing that there's a lot of people that believe the same thing. And once you start surrounding yourself around those people, you know, they, they build you up, you know, your, your life becomes purposeful and not just very selfish. I think, I think some selfless, you know, you, I was just going to say, uh, yeah, I I think the Kairos moment, you know, said differently or, or said more simply is I think sometimes those traumatic events can lead you to your life purpose, you know, like it's, it's those, those events, change you they they change your structure they change your awareness they change your dna and and often through adversity often through significant trial or challenge you come out of that finding a purpose you know i the best example i can yeah. think of is think about the susan g komen foundation you know look at what came out of susan g komen fighting her cancer battle, you know, through that adversity. Yeah. And, and, and unfortunately it didn't work out the way that she wanted it to work out, but look at the charity that was created as a result of that. Right. So people can find their purpose through loss, through adversity, through challenge, through tribulation, through trials. And that's exactly what you're talking about is that, that acute focus. Once you've been through something traumatic that can, can be now your, your center of, of what you're going to pursue. Yeah. Yeah. No, hundred percent. And once you have that, it's so pivotal and you'll hear this. I'm, I'm sure a lot of the successful people that you've had on on your, on your podcast, I've listened to a few, you know, there's always someone or many people that come into their life that help them get to the level that they need to get to. So to say that I've done this by myself would be totally a lie. You know, I have so many people that have come into my life that have mentored me that have, you know, been beside me and building me to do what I need to do. Um, and supporting me to be able to give me the tools, the resources to, to make that happen. All the mentors I've ever had, um, you know, I, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. I'm not by any means doing this all by my own self. I do do the hard work. I am driven. I am convicted. But, you know, you have to have good people around you that can show you to to find your true North Star, right? Because that's the whole idea of, of prudence. Prudence in, in the sense that being you can work hard, you can be organized and you can be a perfectionist in what you're doing is conscientiousness. Be last prudence. You can work hard, be a perfectionist, be organized in a very specific direction. But if you're moving in the wrong direction, you're going to take twice as long to get there. But if you have someone that can point you in the right direction, a mentor, somebody that can teach you where to go, that prudence is really what separates you from someone else because you can get there so much faster by the help of other people. And if you can do that, you can do that times 10, times 20 mentors. Imagine the impact that you can make. You don't have to, you know, beat around the bush two times. You have different people in your life that played integral pieces of your life, parts of your life. And I think that's crucial. You know, the whole, you're going to be the average of the five people you surround yourself around. That's 100% correct. Um, but more so, you know, you it, it's not just five people. Like, it's, you have to think about the, the four pillars of your life, health, wealth, love, and happiness, right? You have to have people that can show you about each. If you're lacking one, it's gonna it's gonna take you off balance, and it's never gonna be balanced. But it's always gonna be it's not it's not ever gonna be balanced. You're always gonna be balancing 
And so that's the point in, in that's the point. way I've been going about my life and about, about all these, you know, ventures that I'm trying to go on and, and the communities that I'm trying to change, the lives that I'm trying to change, the students. I'm trying to teach them everything that I know from the mentors that I've had, the experiences that I've had, the books that I've read, um, the people that are beside me. I make them part of my group. Um, and we, and we move together, right? Because a lot of times students go to, to school or, you know, anybody listening to this podcast, they try to go things at, at it alone and it's so much harder, right? Like try, there's a reason why, there's a reason why solitary confinement is the worst place in the, in the world. Even, even people that have killed people don't want to be in solitary confinement. Yeah. And that's because it's you hard to be, to be alone. alone. Yeah. Right. No. So, so you, ha- you have to have people on your side and find a good group of people, right? Not just anybody. No, I agree. Right. It doesn't have a good influence on you. You have to have good people on you. You know, so I, I think that's, that's huge. And I've, I've been extremely fortunate to have many mentors, uh, many great people in my life, especially my brother, you know, my sister and my mom's support, um, you know, my loved ones in, in, in the past and present that have supported me and, and helped me do what I do, what I do now. And, and it's, it's pivotal, you know, and I can't, I can't neglect it. It's just it's something that I'll always contribute. Anytime I give a speech, I always say I'm the product of the people that are behind me and I'm standing on, on the shoulders of giants. So, and, and it is, and it's truth, you know, it's, I know I'm the I product of what, of what they've made me. I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, unfortunately, Eddie, we're out of time, but man, I just got to say some great, great points, really good wisdom, great hope story. Um, you know, I'm happy that you're out there hitting it hard, trying to make a difference impacting the lives of the homeless and impacting the lives of other students and uh, younger generation. And uh, I just applaud what you're doing and, and thank you so much for your truth and your vulnerability and your story. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on and it was, it was nice. It was nice being on here. All right, Jim, what do you think about our conversation, our chat, our dialogue, our interview with Eddie Minacho? Wow. He's, been through a lot is what I was thinking the whole time. I'm like, geez, like, man, yeah, give this guy a break. Well, I, you know, if it wasn't the death of his father, which obviously yeah. I experienced as well, but I, I think the most traumatic thing was just hearing him explain what had happened when he just got besieged by like 14, 15 yeah. gang members on a gang initiation night for no reason. Like he hadn't done anything. Like he was just wrong place, wrong time. And people were trying to, to kill him. That's the stuff I worry about. Well, now I kind of understand so you know why, why you it, worry about it. It happens but, just to normal people. Jennifer, that was in the inner city. You worry about that out on a trail. You worry about somebody coming at exactly. you with a knife out on the trail or something. Scary people live on the trails. And, and and let's just say there's been dead bodies found on our trails, okay? Husbands leaving their wives and murdering them and leaving them in bags, okay? So that's why I worry about these kind of weird things because they happen. Well, are you worried about this husband leaving no, you? God, no. <laughs> I'd be more worried about me leaving you out there. Just Jennifer, <laughs> whoa, straight out of the mouth of my wife. I got to have one eye open looking at her at all times. I'm always leading on the trail. And I now I don't want to lead because I got to keep my eye on you. You better keep your eye on me. Jennifer. <laughs> Jeez Louise. No, but for real, like it. Th- these are things that do really happen i know, I know like some people think oh no way that doesn't happen they do and so i think of the things that very rarely happen but can happen 
I just in hearing him talk about that, like I, I get really fascinated because in those in those times when something really traumatic mm-hmm. is happening, you know how time stands still? Yes. Like it feels like every moment That's is what like he said. I know. Yeah. But like to to have him reach up and and grab at the knife this knife was coming for his neck and he grabs at the knife and yeah. you know and he, and he gets stabbed in the process and then he has to find his way you know just that and then he's sitting there going okay this is it you know like I've never ever in my life had a situation where I felt like my end was near like right. my, my my life was flashing before my eyes and so to hear people talk about that is just really I want I mean I wanted riveting. to know what city it was but I didn't want to ask I was like um where exactly is this? Because I want to make sure I don't accidentally go down this road. Yeah. You know, like. Really? At the wrong time of year. Well, I, here's how you know. There's no lights on. There's I, no street lights on. I don't like it. I don't like it either. I just don't like it. I'm staying on the mountain. <laughs> I don't like it. Well, I appreciate what he did to rally, though. I appreciate yeah. that 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 experience plus the others, you mm-hmm. know, really kind of formulated in him, it was it resolved. It hardened him in a good way, and yeah. and allowed him to crystallize his focus on right. making a difference. And what a difference he's making! I mean, he's serving the homeless. He's he's actually going medicine out on the streets. He's mentoring younger people. He's he's a he's a he's an example of mm-hmm. what you aspire to be. Rising out of those you know moments Absolutely. of adversity and yeah. challenges, etc. So I th- I thought it was fascinating. Thank yeah. you, Eddie, for your story. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for what you shared. Uh, riveting, riveting, you know, example of uh, life experiences culminating to to paint a, a direction for you, a, a path that you're going to take. So I thought it was awesome. And mm-hmm. so if people want to hear more about uh, other awesome stories, our podcast, how do they do so? Well, they could listen on iTunes and Spotify and Alexa and SoundCloud and Google Play and iHeartRadio. Wow, you just rattled Did off I get all, them all? Of, you got them all right. Wow. Kudos to you. Good yes. job. And if somebody wants to connect with us directly, they can do so on Hope Radio Podcast on both Instagram and Facebook. Reach out, send us a message. Maybe you've got a story of hope to share, just like Eddie. Eddie came through yeah. our uh, Instagram account. I so love that. So if you've got a hope story to share, reach out to us directly, send us a direct message, and uh, we'd be happy to talk with you. Or maybe you know somebody else that, that does. But either way, we'd love to connect with you yes. and uh, hear what you have to say. Absolutely. And I think Jennifer... Guess what? What? I've got another interview planned for tomorrow. I've got another Hope Radio podcast. I got more stories of hope. I got more people dealing hope to our listeners. Well, that's awesome. Should we do another one? We shall. One more. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. Here's a preview of episode number 92 of the Hope Radio podcast. So that weekend, I think I got there on Saturday, early evening. Um, We talked. I got him to the point where he was laughing and smiling and, you know, we talked all about, you know, the rumor and just about everything. Nick and I were extremely, extremely close. And, um, um, Monday he, um, woke up, was going to go to class, but he didn't. He, he walked downtown, uh, Minneapolis. And for, um, for those of you who aren't familiar with Minneapolis, the Mississippi River runs through it and throughout the University of Minnesota campus. So there are a lot of bridges. And Nick walked to one of the bridges and jumped. 